This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intricasso. During today's podcast, I'm joined by Dr. Lawrence Krauss to discuss his recently published book, The Physics of Climate Change. Dr. Krauss, welcome to the program. Well, it's nice to be with you, at least virtually. <laughs> yes, thank you. Dr. Krauss's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. On background, listeners are aware in late May, I interviewed Professor John Kotcher regarding his survey published in Lancet Planetary Health that showed physicians worldwide had a limited understanding of the climate crisis and its health effects. For example, 41% they were unwilling to discuss the climate crisis with their patients because of their lack of knowledge on the topic, and less than half also thought the climate crisis caused heat-related illnesses, rising malnutrition and hunger, and increases in vector-borne diseases. While Dr. Krauss's book is limited to providing an explanation of the basic physics underlying the global climate crisis, how and why the burning of fossil fuels is warming the planet is essential to understanding why it poses this century's greatest health threat. Concerning recent climate-related events, listeners may be aware North America just experienced the warmest June in recorded history. The heat wave out west was five standard deviations above normal. A recent NASA NOAA study concluded the Earth's energy imbalance approximately doubled between 05 and 19. And finally, an IPCC report expected later this year warns a series of thresholds or tipping points may soon be crossed that will leave us unable to control or limit global warming. With that, again, uh, with me to discuss his recent book, The Physics of Climate Change, is Dr. Lawrence Krauss. So, Dr. Krauss, let me begin by asking... Uh, you do note this in the preface, but just to make this clear, you you do note that climate change is an empirical fact, correct? Yeah, of course, it's an empirical fact. Yes, and that's and it's really important to realize that that's not something based on modeling the future. Um, it's 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 in, it involves measuring what's happening now. Okay, thank you. Just to quote you. In your forward, you state, quote-unquote, climate change, evolution, and the Big Bang are empirical facts, not speculation, and the relevant data validate fundamental theoretical expectations. So let's work through your discussion. You begin uh, by explaining uh, the physics of climate change, by explaining how the Earth is heated by the sun's radiation energy in the form of infrared radiation. Could you uh, explain how that works? Well, okay, and 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 I think this is important. What you said at the end uh, when you made my quote is that when you um, when you see correlations, and this is important in medicine, correlations are not causation. But if you have a model that gives a good reason why one thing should be correlated to another, and the predictions of that model agree with the correlations, that gives you strong support. So I think it's really important to recognize that that what we're seeing has a really strong basis in fundamental physics. And that, and that, and that is, it's a poorly named effect, the greenhouse effect, by the way. It really isn't. The reason a greenhouse is warm is not for the same reasons that the earth is heating up completely. A greenhouse, one of the main reasons a greenhouse is warm or the inside of your car is warm is, is not just that the windows let in light 
and don't let out the infrared radiation, but there's a barrier. The windows don't allow the, a, 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 an exchange of, of gases. Or, of course, in the real world, there's no, there's no window around the Earth. But, but, the, but aside from that, the effect is somewhat similar. What happens is, um, is that uh, ultimately, carbon dioxide absorbs infrared radiation. Uh, it's an absorber, and so does water, by the way. But the more carbon dioxide you have, certain frequencies get absorbed in, radi in infrared radiation that wouldn't get, uh, get absorbed otherwise. These radi this, this radiation is emanating from the Earth because the, the radiation coming from the sun is in a completely different, it's in the visible spectrum. Uh, the radiation from the Earth, of course, is, is, is the Earth is radiating at its average temperature, and that's in a wavelength band that carbon dioxide absorbs in. And so what happens is, Ultimately, the reason the Earth heats up is it, it's, a, it's a little surprising, in fact. All objects radiate that are hot, and they radiate by what's called the Stefan-Boltzmann law, but that really doesn't matter. They radiate at the fourth power of their temperature. So the Earth, at, at, say 200 years ago, would radiate, and what happens is it's simple physics. Energy in equals energy out. You've got energy in coming from the sun. And then the Earth is radiating energy into space, and when those two rates are equal, the temperature of the Earth doesn't change. And what ultimately what carbon dioxide does in the atmosphere and some other greenhouse gases is it reduces the amount of energy that the Earth is radiating into space. But of course, the Earth is getting the same amount of sunlight, and that's causing a net flow of energy in. The, the, the amount is small, it sounds small, it's about two to three watts per square meter. Uh, but there's a lot of square meters in the Earth, and that we can actually measure that. Once again, this is not hypothetical. We can measure it. It turns out all of this, the important action actually happens at the top of the atmosphere, believe it or not, not at the Earth's surface, because that's where the Earth is radiating. And basically, the Earth radiates into space at the point where the atmosphere becomes transparent to the radiation. And the main point is, as you get more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, the point where the atmosphere becomes transparent to radiation is at a higher elevation. And higher elevations are generally cooler, and that means the Earth is radiating from a surface which is a little bit cooler, and that means it's radiating less energy. And that's, that's, that's called um, radiative forcing. And that's what we can measure, and it's about two to three watts per square meter. And that's the heat that's been coming down to the Earth. And ultimately, we can then ask what the effects are. And, and very simple physics arguments allow you to estimate that the temperature of the global temperature of the atmosphere would have changed by about a degree or to a degree and a half over the last hundred years, and that's exactly what we've observed. Um, and the oceans, however, of course, are are much have a much bigger heat capacity than the land. There's much because of deep circulation, they can take in much more heat. The oceans have increased by temperature of what doesn't sound like very much is 0 0.07 degrees Celsius in that time. But, but the o oceans haven't yet equilibrized their heat, and they're going to continue to increase in, in temperature. But even the 0 0.07 represents an amazing amount. It, meant it's, it represents an amount of additional energy that's equivalent to about 3.4 billion Hiroshima-level atomic bomb explosions in the ocean over the last 25 years, for example, which is a lot of energy. Right. So we've caught a break in a sense because oceans are a massive carbon sink. And I do want to get back to oceans. Um, mm. But you use the, uh, per your point about it's, it's, it's a poor 
uh, explanation to phrase it as as a as a greenhouse effect. You use the term uh, "it's a blanket" uh, that the Earth, in a yeah. sense, is covered by a blanket. And so you, that's more. Yeah, accurate. I mean, it's, it's, I, I, I guess the reason I think that I like that explanation a little bit better. I mean, a blanket doesn't. It's not a blanket for the same reason that the blanket also holds air in. Mm-hmm. But what I like about the fact about a blanket is it's kind of an insulator. What happens is the blanket absorbs the infrared radiation from your body and the inside of the blanket. But because it's a, an insulator, the outside of the blanket is much cooler. So therefore, the amount of radiation that's coming out of the blanket into the room is much less. And that's, a, that's basically allowing the heat to stay in and allowing it to heat up, basically, uh, as you sleep. So you get into bed and it's cold and very little while afterwards, it's warm in there. And so the atmosphere is like a blanket in that sense. That the, the part of it near the surface of the Earth is warmer than and absorbing the radiation from the Earth, and the and the partner that the, the at the edge of the atmosphere is much cooler, and that's what's radiating into space. And the more and the more effectively the atmosphere absorbs infrared radiation in between, the 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 less radiation actually makes it into space, and the more gets stored in the Earth. Right. Now let's go to this is that you discussed Charles Keeling's work and the Keeling curve. Let's let's give the listeners some understanding of how much carbon we've uh, we've admitted into the atmosphere uh, to help our understanding of this. And this, of course, is generally over the last, say, 250 years, uh, how much carbon and uh, before, say, the before and after, pre-pre-industrial to today, what's the amount of carbon uh, emitted? Well, you know, the pre-industrial level of carbon, the amount of carbon in the atmosphere was about 600 billion tons in, say, 1900 or so. Um, and 600 billion tons is the amount of carbon. And, and that's, you know, uh, uh, um, that was about uh, uh, close to 300 parts per million of the atmosphere. So people think, you know, um, how, can we, how can we mere humans affect the whole Earth's atmosphere? Well, the point is that we as an industrial society globally are emitting about 10 billion tons of carbon into the atmosphere every year. And have been doing so for at least the last 50 years. And so what we're now, not all of that stays in the atmosphere, but a half it does. So what we've done is increase basically the, 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 the abundance of carbon in the atmosphere by over the last, just over the last four, 60 years since 1960. And this is what we measured. We've increased it from about 300 to 420 parts per million. That's more than. That's more than 30% increase just in, in that time. And, and, and we're basically going to be doubling the total amount of carbon in the atmosphere early in the century compared to what it was 100 years ago. And that's remarkable that, that we as a species are doubling the total abundance of carbon in the atmosphere um, in, in, a, in a century or so. And, and it also tells you us why, in some sense, there's a reason. People may ask, well, why do we have to deal with this question now? Besides the fact that the effects of global warming are, are beginning to become more apparent, the answer is that the carbon remains in the atmosphere that we put in there. I mean, some of it disappears, but about 50% of what we put in there remains in the atmosphere for thousands of years, not 10 years, but thousands of years. So that means if we'd sort of stopped, let's say we completely stopped producing carbon in the atmosphere um, uh, a decade ago, that would have been, we would have dumped 
100 gigatons less carbon in the atmosphere. It's one-sixth of what was already there. And, and, and again, maybe if, if 50% of it stays there, it's one-twelfth. So just we would have already ha had a – if we were interested in, in keeping the carbon uh, um, abundance of the atmosphere to, say, less than 450 or 500 parts per million, we would have already, uh, you know, been 10 to 20 percent closer to that. It, it, it would have been easier for us to do it by 20 percent. What we'd have to do now is, is cut back by 20 percent more than per year than we would have had to had we done it in, in 2010. So every year you wait, if you wish, is a year closer to, to, to the level where you know that you're going to be having a, a certain minimum amount of, say, two, two degrees Celsius uh, temperature rise. And so that's the reason, for, in some sense, for some urgency, simply the fact that carbon remains in the atmosphere. And every year we wait, we've, that's more carbon that, 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 that's in there than the year before that's going to stay there and be there for at least a, for at least a millennium. Right. You say later in the book, um, and this is the really a sobering point, that much of what we've put up in the atmosphere in carbon will stay there until about the year 3000. Um, so although we do know that although methane is a much more powerful greenhouse gas, methane, uh, my understanding, has less of a uh, atmospheric life, although um, it does absorb um, more uh, um heat let me let me let me yeah. let, let, let me go back to the ocean uh issue again uh a, a massive carbon sink um however you do note in the book um relative to oceans that again it's our largest sink uh however even if we were to stop emitting carbon emissions the, the planet would still warm uh because of ocean effects could you explain that well, what I'm, yeah, because it takes because of the circulation in the deep ocean, the oceans haven't yet heated up. That means that the energy that's been dumped in the oceans has not yet been uniformly distributed as a temperature rise, and that and and so the oceans will continue heating up because that that energy that's been stored hasn't yet been been um, thermalized, and um, and so that even if we stop today, we've already dumped a lot of energy in there that's going that's going to be thermalized and. As the oceans heat up, of course, the um, the, the atmosphere is like the, is like the, if you wish, the tail of the dog. The ocean is the the oceans are the big are the big mass sink, and um, and and so, and they have a very different time frame, a very different time constant. The, the, the atmosphere, because there's so little of it, heats up relatively quickly. The oceans, because there's so much more of it, takes a long time um, to to heat up. Okay, uh, thank you. So just to repeat, we're at about 420 uh, parts per million of carbon in the atmosphere. Uh, this is a substantial increase over, you, you noted, 300 parts per million uh, about 100 years ago. Uh, this is, again, Charles Ke uh, Keeling and the Keeling Curve. It's the hockey stick curve, uh, as they note, uh, as you note in the... In well, the, it's, it's, in, it's, a tip, it's the tip of the hockey, hockey stick curve. It's He's been. He started measuring in about 1953 or so, and it really, the curve really started taking off every single day since about 1960. Every single day that carbon dioxide has been measured in Manalawa and also in in the Antarctic, and that's that that little oscillating curve that continues to rise. Which, when you put it on top of of the carbon um, 
content of the atmosphere over the last 500,000 years, you get the hockey stick because it's been more or less constant and over that time. And now suddenly it's, it's jumping up. Okay. Uh, I do want to note these names. I found this fascinating, your discussion of, of scientists who researched this, say, over the last approximately 170 years. You start with Joseph Furrier, uh, John uh, Tyndall, I believe is how his surname is yeah, pronounced. Tyndall. And, Tyndall. And, and Fourier, Fourier is pronounced Fourier. It's a very famous thing in physics called Fourier analysis. But anyway. Okay, then, then help me with the other prominent research you note in this, and this is the late 18, uh, 1890s. Go ahead. Is Fonte Arrhenius? Yes. Fonte Yes. Yeah, when, yeah, one of the first Nobel Prize winners in chemistry, as it turned out. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was uh, – pronounce the surname for me again. I'm sorry. Sponte. Okay. Uh, he's usually credited for being the first person to conclude CO2 emissions by human activity were potentially large enough to heat up the planet. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, he's he's sort of – he's the one who kind of popularized it and first really did the calculations, the first real estimates – of how much, I mean, he was off by a factor of two or so, but, but given the, what he had at the time, it was a good analysis. And he was the first one to really try and popularize the notion. And he thought it was a great thing, living in Sweden, that, that the, worth, the world would be warming up. Okay. Let me, you, you do, uh, I was waiting for this, and you do get to this uh, in, in a later chapter, and that's the, of course, the inevitable discussion of nonlinear feedback loops or tipping points. Uh, this is yeah. this is the really sobering aspect of this uh, issue. Uh, and then you give several examples, uh, the albedo effect and various others. Could you uh, identify some of these and how they work? Well, yeah, sure. Let's talk about Greenland because that's probably one of the places where where this is going to this is most notable immediately and where it's because there have been a lot of measurements of ice loss in Greenland, and, and Greenland is losing ice and at, a, at what seems to be an accelerating rate. And the question, the real question, which is still an open question, is whether, you know, when Greenland ice sheet melts, the sea levels will rise by seven meters. So the question is, is that going to happen? And if so, how long is it going to happen? How long will it take? I think most estimates are that suggest that, that we're relatively close if it, it, well, most most estimates would say if the Earth's temperature rose on average by four degrees Celsius, then we're, then then you're you're on a there's no stopping it. It would still take anywhere from centuries to millennia, probably closer to millennia to 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 to, to um, uh, melt. And and but but they, at, by the end of it, the sea levels will have risen by by seven meters. But here's what what's happening now, and it's surprising. Uh, people is is a few factors that are accelerating it. First, very simply, the top of the Greenland ice sheet is say about a mile above sea level, a mile thick. But as it melts, the top of the of the ice sheet gets goes down. It, it's no longer at a mile high. But we all know that the, that the Earth gets warmer as you go down in elevation. So when the top of the ice sheet is now lower than a, than a mile, it's warmer and it melts faster. And then that, of course, accelerates. And that's a kind of nonlinear feedback because as it, as it continues to melt, its elevation decreases. And as its elevation decreases, it gets warmer. There's another, a few other effects. There's the fact that the, as, the, um, 
as the ice melts around there, the salt, uh, the sea level salinity changes and ocean currents change. And the ocean also, by the way, gets warmer and, and begins to melt glaciers at the edges. But another effect, which, which I don't think was expected um, in a number of years, because people said, okay, well, if, if this, more of it's melting, then what's going to happen is there's going to be more rain turning to snow, and it's going to snow more, and that will, that will return the snow back to, to Greenland. But what, what happened is, because of the, uh, of, of the effects of, of ice melt and salinity and, and currents, wind currents and ocean currents, there was an almost high pressure zone above, above Greenland. So the effect was that there was actually less snow instead of more snow. And um, so all of these things can exacerbate what, what initially starts out as just some something that do, depends linearly on, on the temperature of the atmosphere, if you wish, and then becomes nonlinear because there are all these other, other feedback effects. And, and similar things can be happening, say, in, in people have talked about the, the, the rainforests in, in, in the Amazon as, as, um, as it becomes, as it becomes warmer, um, uh, what happens is that, that those that those areas begin to dry out, and you turn from a rainforest to a savanna, which then and, and those and the, all the death of all those trees net becomes a, a net carbon uh, producer instead of a carbon absorber because as those trees die, they release carbon to the atmosphere instead of taking it up when they're a rainforest. And, and you know there are also many more complicated feedback mechanisms like the the, the changing uh, ocean currents, which will affect uh, which will which will not only affect northern Europe, but will could produce a much greater drought in in both uh, South America and in in Africa. And so it's you know the point is when you get to a certain level, when one region like Greenland begins to tip, it can dramatically affect um, many things in the rest of the world. And so a number of these tipping point things are connected; they're not independent with other tipping points. And some people are saying, uh, I was just talking to a climate scientist who. The current estimate is that perhaps we've already passed the threshold for Greenland, that Greenland, there's no stopping Greenland ice melting. And that means over the course of centuries to millennia, the Earth's sea level will go up by seven meters, which is, you know, a meter, as I point out in the, end, in the, in the book, it's already written in stone. There's nothing we can do about the fact that sea levels are going to rise at least a half a meter by 2050 or 2100 just from the heat that's already been dumped in, and the fact that water, as it heats up, expands. Half a meter may not seem like a lot to you, <laughs> unless you have, unless you have a, a bowling ball being held above your foot, when half a meter might seem like a lot. But, but a significant fraction of the Earth's population lives less than a meter above sea level, and that's a significant factor then. But then if you take seven meters, well, you're talking about uh, seven meters will just dramatically change the the maps of the world. Right. And in fact, uh, I do want to get you begin and end with the, uh, with the Mekong river. And I do want to get to that, but the yeah. one, the one feedback I find particularly troublesome and I'll ask you to uh, discuss this. And this is the, uh, loss of permafrost in Siberia. Yeah, that's, I mean, of course, that's a, that's a, a, a great concern and uh, stored under the permafrost in Siberia is a tremendous amount of methane, a huge amount coming from from life forms that died uh, over uh, eons. And of course, as that permafrost begins to melt, you can release huge amounts of methane. And as you pointed out, methane is a very significant greenhouse gas. And so 
um, that melting doesn't just doesn't just warm up the earth. It, it it produces things that will warm up the earth even faster. And 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 the melting the permafrost and it could happen very fast. Once it starts to melt, once it's really starting to melt, there's not much way, way, uh, uh, you can do to stop it. And that would release a huge amount of methane, uh, um, which would dramatically impact on the on the uh, the heat balance of the earth. Right. You do note in the book there's as much uh, carbon stored in permafrost as carbon already in the atmosphere. So uh, concerning. Yeah. Let, let me go. Let me go to. I I I do think you provide a very effective. Uh, a case which is again you begin a discussion of the Mekong River uh, Delta in Southeast Asia and the effect relative to sea level rise uh, would have in Vietnam but also it's the as you say it's the rice bowl uh, of that part of the world and it also the river supports uh, substantial uh, fishing a hundred thousand species of fish and as I said, the Delta is the uh, world. Actually, I think a, a, a thousand feet species oh, of freshwater me. fish, which Thanks. is which is still more than in, in all the in all the in all of the rivers in the United States. Thank you, typo on my part. Um, species okay. of fish, and then you again, as I noted, the world's most productive rice bowl. So, what 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 are we seeing already uh, there, and what might we see um, if we continue to emit carbon uh, to that part of the world? Well, yeah, they, 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 you know, I, I hit home because I led a led a, an expedition of people to, the, down the Mekong River, uh, and that was that was one of the reasons I wrote the book because it really became personal for me. The Mekong Delta is a perfect storm uh, for climate change because um, the Mekong River already, as I say, most of mo- almost all of South Vietnam, and I mean almost all, is less than a meter above sea level, and what. What holds back the, the, the their tides every day from the sea? What holds back the sea is the is is the uh, is the Mekong River right now, okay? And the Mekong River holding back the sea floods the delta, and that's what produces this incredibly most most productive rice growing area in the world. But as uh, sea level rises, and it will rise, and there's nothing we can do about it. As I say, it's between a half and one meter. By mid-century or by the end of the century, most of South Vietnam will be more or less underwater when it comes to as far as the ocean is concerned. And and that water, when it becomes brackish, will instead of it'll turn into mangrove swamps instead of instead of rice production. Plus, of course, the uh, freshwater fish issue. And and it, it's compounded by a variety of things. So first of all, the land is actually sinking as well as the water rising. Mm-hmm. Um, because of, of, use, of use of water, it's same things happen in Mexico City, uh, and you can actually measure, as it's been measured, that the land is actually sinking. And actually, the 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 floor, the depth, the floor of the of the river is sinking because literally millions of tons of sand is taken out of that river every year to be used for concrete production. So I think of this region, which has been which has been affected by war and genocide and awful things and and yet those people have survived beautifully and it's a flourishing culture and people aren't bitter and it's and they survived all of these problems of at that time of, of I one could say in some sense a lot of it was their own doing but now they're facing a, a problem which they really had no part in in making they weren't the industrial countries that were producing this but they're gonna 
in this century experienced the impact of climate change via sea level rise in a way that's incredibly dramatic. And it's going, it has the potential, unless we do something, to, um, to displace tens of millions of people as well as, as well as remove their primary means of food production. Now, the Mekong Delta is in microcosm what can happen in many other places. It, because it's so, it's almost on the tipping point now, because it's, it's, it's almost underwater now, it's very sensitive to changes in the future. But there are many other places near Bangladesh and other places around the world. It's been estimated now, a recent analysis of, of, of land of, uh, height has pointed out that earlier analysis based on actually, satellite, actually information done for the space shuttle was wrong. And, and about 180 million people around the world live on less than one meter above sea level. And that's a, you know, that's a huge number of people who are going to be impacted. Okay, uh, thank you. We do. My my last question for you is, what's what's your hope or expectation for this book? Uh, I'm sure you're well aware of the dysfunction here in D.C. Um, you, you probably read recently, uh, finally now in 2021, a Republican House member from Provo, Utah, because they're experiencing drought. Um, there was just a piece in the New York Times, for example, on the Great Salt Lake. Uh, John Curtis from Provo has started a climate change caucus for the Republicans in the House. However, uh, Senator Ron Johnson was recently outed for uh, uh, referring to uh, climate change as quote-unquote BS, although he tried to uh, walk back that comment. Um, so mm -hmm. we're still in this situation where uh, largely one party of two is in, is in denial. But what's your hope ex expectation for this work relative to um, uh, policy reform? Well, the key point, and I made this, this is a conscious decision. My book does not discuss climate change policy. Exactly, yes. My feeling is, my feeling is that part of the problem is that, that, that people on the right in particular assume that they don't want to be told what to do, and they assume this is some, some kludge to uh, hidden in here as an effort to want to do government regulation and all the things that, Mm -hmm. that, you know, the Republicans don't seem to like. So it's a, so it's a, um, it, it's kind of a Trojan horse. But the point is that we can all have disagreements about policy, but we can't have disagreements about facts, or we shouldn't. And so what I wanted to do was to provide the first step and say, look, I'm not saying we should do anything or not do anything. Um, and uh, the, um, uh, what I want everyone to realize is that Climate change is not only real, but understandable by anyone. And that the basic observations don't require supercomputers to understand the general, de the, the, the detailed features do. And that, um, and that we can then, once we all agree on what the challenges are, what the risks are and challenges are, and what ca the causes are, we can, then, we can then move to the next stage, which is a policy discussion. But the, the fundamental realities of the science is, are not Democratic or Republican or liberal or conservative. So my hope was that this would not be seen as, hey, I'm trying to thrust something down your neck on, for, as far as the Republicans are concerned, but also equally not saying, hey, the world is going to end in 12 years, as some Democrats would, you know, have said. And so once, once you have the basic, uh, basic realities, then we can proceed to do policy. So my hope is that the public, that this will help the public understand the situation. And 
And since, from my experience and my observation of history, it seems to me that, um, and I'm not the first to say this, but the governments don't lead, they follow. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so if we're going to have any realistic and sensible policy, the po- that has to in some sense come from a public um, push because politicians, on, on Republicans, if they thought their constituents Wanted, you know, we're really concerned about this, and 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 it was an issue. Would act. It's not. It's not as if they. It, 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 they'll change on a dime because because politicians want to be reelected. Mm-hmm. And so, anyway, the hope is that this can be a. That's why what we've done is we've sent a copy. My foundation has raised money and sent a copy of the book to every member of Congress, um, with the hope that they'll that this will at least provide some basic understandings, and then we can have discussions about central public sensible public policy you might say well look i understand this risk but here's the reason why i won't don't want to take these actions or or here is the impact of of carbon reduction efforts or here's the impact of of uh of of uh, of trying to you know end cold cold usage and production in the united states and 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 so um if they feel less threatened my hope is that that people might be willing to well, in general, people aren't threatened. Their minds are more open uh, to listening. And, um, you know, I, I, I had some friends of mine in mind who, who, who basically didn't want to be preached at either about what they should do. And, and, and one of them was a, a good friend of mine, Penn Gillette, who's a magician and, and, and uh, Penn and Teller. And, um, and he, he said this was the book he was waiting for because it basically gave him the information he needed to make his own mind up. No, exactly. I, I'm 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 glad you. I'm glad I asked the question and you gave a, 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 the answer. Um, you know, there's just so much rhetoric on either side. This is again the the basic physics of, of understanding uh, how this is occurring, uh, and again uh, some of the ripple or again a tipping point or feedback loop effects. Um, so I, I think if we could if we could move away from the rhetoric and get down to just this is the science and how do we address or remediate the effect, um, we'd be better off and more productive. So with that, uh, uh, Dr. Oh, well, yeah. Dr. Krauss, I thank you for your time and explanation. I wish you every success uh, with the work. Well, thanks, and thanks for the, the, the good questions, and I hope, I hope uh, my answers will help you and others. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, To suggest a program topic or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.